This is James Reeves. I'm from United Kingdom. Welcome to Legendarium. And I went in, I bought my ticket, I went in and realized this is the style of art I hate. I just, I don't like this. What is it? It's very, well, it's very French. It To me, it looks like... <laughs> <laughs> we... say, say no more. We're back! Well, uh, well, for many people, I think it's going to be the first time you've heard us. This is the Legendarium Podcast. Welcome, uh, old comers and newcomers. I am Craig Hanks, your host. Let's go ahead and introduce our Motley crew here. Uh, well, he's pricklier than a cactus and half as fun to have in your pants. It's Ryan Bruckman. Mm, can't go there. <laughs> can't go there. Uh, I just did. And he's like alcohol, always at a party, making you say stupid stuff. It's Ken Johnson. You can't get under my skin. The Cubs won the World Series. Oh, that's true. And when I'm ready to kill myself, I'm going to climb up to the top of his ego, then jump to his IQ. It's newcomer Kyle Lemon. I mean, you can get under my skin anytime you'd like, so. That's, wow. I don't know <laughs> what to make of that. <laughs> so, he's, so far for entry insults, we've got into pants, under skin, and off the edge of a building. We're good so far. <laughs> we can probably move on. All right. Yeah, let's the move newer, on. The newer, darker. Uh, Kyle, <laughs> you're new. What up? Welcome. Thank you. Good uh, to be here. Yeah, Kyle and I go back at least of some months. Several of the months. Yeah, we work together, and I noticed one day I looked over because uh, we sit next to each other at work, and on his his desktop wallpaper is literally the Eye of the World symbol thing. That's like the wheel. Well, the Wheel of Time. Yeah, symbol. the Wheel of Time. Uh, the Mickey like Mouse. The Mickey Mouse logo looking thing. And most people say, "Why do you have Mickey Mouse as your you know as your screensaver?" <laughs> and I'm like, "Ah." Because you Noobs. don't understand. Noobs. Noobs in general. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, anyway, glad to have you, man. Yeah, glad to be here. I'm excited. We, uh, needed a, we needed a resident expert because although Craig and I have both ventured into this series a little bit and in past time, we needed someone who knew what they were talking about because otherwise this could go really, really wrong like many of our other podcasts have. That's true. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I listened to the first 10 books on audiobook. I know I've related this story before. Uh, but the audiobooks are are read by Michael Kramer and Kate Redding, and they're fantastic. Yes. However, once you've listened to nine, ten books, the voices start to you, your brain just tunes them out automatically. And so I remember getting to book ten, getting halfway through it, and realizing I had no idea what had happened in the last four hundred pages. And so I went back and listened again, and the exact same thing happened, even when I tried to concentrate. So it was at that point, and this was. That's exactly uh, what Robert Jordan several. says in his commentary in that too. <laughs> right. I wrote 400 pages and I went back, what just happened here? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, it's been years since I did that. Um, and Ryan, it's been maybe even more years. At, but it was about the same number of books, right? You made it pretty far, so but it's been a while. The last time, and this will date exactly where it is for those who are true fans, the last time that I had been working through the series was when Winter's Heart had just been released. What is that? That's, That's 10, right? Nine, nine, I believe. Path of Daggers is seven, whatever eight is, and then I believe Winter's Heart ten, is nine. Ten might be Crossroads of Twi- I don't even know. We're going to get there, though. Yeah. So, <laughs> oh, And then, Ken, uh, you haven't read any of these at all I'm until going now. I'm brand new. And so it, we've got a nice little mix. Uh, all this, partly just to tell you who are listening... We don't have all the answers. Even Kyle, Kyle, this is like your sixth time through the series or something like that, but you won't have all the answers. 
Right. No. Um, Especially when we get to the later books. Um, I started rereading the series from the beginning each time a new book was released, starting from, I believe, Path of Daggers. Yeah, I think it was Path of Daggers. And so I've read all of the beginning books several times. I've actually only finished the ending book, Memory of Light, twice. So... Still, that. that's that's a lot of... It's a lot. That's it's, a lot of wheel of time. It's, it's like lot. saying, I feel like running a marathon, so every time I went out running, I just added another half in there, another marathon in there, just just for kicks and giggles. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, there is no end to the wheel of time, really, so... It, it just resets. Or beginnings. <sighs> you just blew my mind. Uh, <laughs> so, anyway, we will... Not, I guess my point in this is before we get all the angry hate mail, which will come anyway, I suppose, but to head off a little bit of it, we're not here to try to provide all the answers for all the little details. Um, Hopefully we get some of those, but mostly it's just about um, what's what's it like to read this for the first time in Ken's case or coming at it fairly fresh uh, in the case of me and Ryan. Um, and, you know, kind of being guided through that by one Kyle Lemon. So hopefully we have some fun. But anyway, um, shall we start? Shall we? St- do we have any housekeeping items we need to go over? You know, I guess I better do that. Care. Yeah, I do want to mention Patreon uh, for those of you who are about to enjoy this episode. Patreon.com slash Legendarium. Uh, we've got several backers there we are, who we are very grateful for. And uh, we want to add you to that number. I am thinking uh, that we are going to either add or change a uh, a reward, one of the level rewards. We got some things in the works that I think are, we're going to be able to, re- to reward those who help us out a little more than we have in the past. Absolutely. Um, uh, hint, legendarium apparel, which is going to be pretty cool, I think. Uh, so we'll we'll look into that, but uh, patreon.com slash legendarium, help us out. icon on a Speedo is going to be a killer. <laughs> <laughs> Man, we had the five minutes, and we've gone <laughs> to the wrong place many times already. That tree is just in the wrong spot. Uh, so anyway... Uh, patreon.com slash legendarium and if you are if you found us on iTunes or on Dragon Mount or something like this our website is thelegendariumpodcast.com find us there like us on Facebook Twitter at legendariumpod okay that's all out of the way can we please talk about Eye of the World now absolutely okay sweet so I maybe I just want to start at the very beginning should we talk about the uh, the prologue Ryan, thoughts on the prologue? So, I I love book series that start thousands of years before what you're going to be paying attention to, or hundreds of years, in, depending on the case. And uh, as was referenced when we did Way of Kings, you know, I appreciate having a reference point to start with that hooks you in, and then all of a sudden it's, hey, by the way, this story is just kind of important to what's going to happen in the future, and then they introduce you to the farm boy. So, I, I loved the... Uh, this prologue, especially because it gave us something to reference when in the future they talk about man going crazy for using the one power. Like, you know what that right. looks like now. You know what Luce there and Kinslayer's response was. You know what that is, and you have a reference point throughout the rest of this series to go back to when they talk about the dangers of using the male half of the... Uh, the one power. The one power. Is, yeah. Is it, yeah, one power, right? Yeah, the one power. Sometimes Sidon, the ice. Yeah, Sidene. 
I said I will refer to it as the true source. There's so many names for it. It's it's the force essentially. Mm-hmm. The great the eye of the world. The great amoebus blob in yes. space that gives you power. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> I'd like access to that, please. It's the dark side. Um you know, uh, yeah, you know, I won't put a pin in that one, Ken. You I'm going to come back to that. That's the, foreshadowing. The force. Yeah. Um or you know what? Screw it. Take the pin out. I want to talk about it now. <laughs> um, and this is why we aren't going chronologically. Might, yeah, might as well. I, I, on my list of things that I really liked from this book, I wrote down that the, um, the lore behind Sidene and Sidar, I really like it. I, I can remember a little bit. Like I said, I've read many of these books, but to be honest, most of it's really hazy. So it was all kind of coming back uh, on this one. And I like what he brings up in this first book when he talks about Sidene and Sidar kind of pushing and pulling against each other. And that's what turns the wheel of time. And I just love that bit of imagery and the Aes Sedai symbol being the uh, the yin and yang mm-hmm. kind yeah. of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyway, that makes me it does make me think of Star Wars a little bit because... Um, it's really easy in Star Wars to say light side is good, dark side is bad. But no matter what uh, George Lucas tried to force into the Star Wars mythology, it kind of comes out that that the light side and dark side both have strengths and weaknesses well, and, and, you know, and help and hurt each other at the same time. I think one of the key elements to this is the fact that the male half of the one power, the true source, is tainted. And that's what causes much of the, the issues there. Right. right. It's tainted as a last um, strike at, at the dragon and then the Ace and the Aes Sedai. But... When you refer to it as kind of like the force in the dark side and the light side, it, it really is a matter of what is it used for. We just happen to have, in this case, the dark side, you know, the male's half, has a legitimate physical consequence to its use. That's um, true. Which, in some instances, in, in Star Wars lore, is true as well. It's not uncommon in fantasy for a physical reaction to be, uh, to showcase when you use a great power inappropriately. Yeah. Uh, Kyle, did you have any thoughts on the prologue? Oh, I, I actually really love the prologue, especially going back to it for the you know fifth or sixth time, um, and seeing kind of what Ryan said the the threads, if you will, that come from the prologue that you see later on, or just when you see um, men that can channel and the madness that happens, and and having that so. Um, up front for the series I think is crucial to be able to understand why this whole society or this entire world has kind of evolved into thinking that sighting is essentially the dark side of the force um, or you know however you want to say that because even if it didn't start e- that way even if it didn't start that way because originally in you know the age of legends it wasn't it was male and female working would, together working together in harmony hands. Um, which, side note, I was thinking, if you're going to label dark side, sidene, light side, sidar, you're going to get this whole male-female problem. Like, basically, you're saying men, it's the man-hate. Oh, The man-hate for, si- for the dark side. Well, there's some great stuff with that. Uh, at least some foreshadowing with the Aes Sedai and the red Aja and all that stuff. So, yeah, it, it does create that kind of thing. 
What I really, really enjoy about uh, the prologue is just how crazy he goes. And you don't really have this, I guess, time frame. So you, you don't get a, a feeling for how long he's been crazy, but he is just completely insane in this particular scene um, to the point where there are bodies on the floor and he doesn't even recognize that that's what has happened. He doesn't understand that he's just basically murdered everybody. Yeah, annihilated everybody within a hundred mile radius right. until Elon shows up. Which I, I didn't quite get. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw there were tons of dead people, but it never really explains this is how they died. This is the spell he cast. I assume that we're going to get more understanding of that later, but we don't... I'm, maybe it's just all by implication. I don't know. I don't know that it's really, really necessary to say, you know... He cast a balefire bomb or something like that. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's not a not a huge thing. We just know that everyone around him is dead, and it seems to have happened almost instantaneously or within a very short amount of time. And mm-hmm. it was his doing, and he doesn't realize it. And yeah. that it was his family, um, which because, is why he's kinslayer. Which is now. why they yeah. label him kinslayer, and that he was so removed from it because of the madness that he didn't know that even Ilyana was dead, or any of his family. And then when he finally gets that brief look into reality where Elon kind of takes that madness away from his mind for just a split second. Yeah, to, makes him lucid for just a moment. Yeah, so that he can actually understand that this was his own doing. Then you realize the, the severity of the madness, which I, th- I thought was really, really yeah, cool. Which yeah. really makes me want to know how he removed the madness long enough to give him that lucidity. Because Ooh, yeah, a little foreshadowing. If there if there is an ability there for someone to remove or place that back in place at any given time, uh, that's that could be very important. And I think we'll I, I'm sure we'll see it later on at and some makes, point. And makes that character very important. Yeah, they're incredibly powerful. They can either they can grant a man a ch- the chance to channel without you know, going crazy, perhaps. And that would be very, very helpful to our main character in this story. Yeah. Uh, Ken, you, before you joined the Legendarium, you were kind of a fantasy noob, as Kyle would say. In, in terms of books, yeah. <laughs> right. I, yeah, sure. Oh, You'd man. watched all the Star Trek and all the Star Wars all and that, all that yeah. stuff. All the good stuff. But I, I'm curious from your perspective, because I think the other three of us kind of were basically breastfed on fantasy stuff. And so, in your case, is it still weird to start a a book like this where you have, you're dropped in the middle of this scene and crazy things are happening and it's in a weird setting and the names are all insane. Uh, Do you know what I mean? Like, Oh, I totally know what you mean. The world building that you know is going to have to come, is that off-putting to you? It's still, I'm used to it now, thanks to, uh, in a large part, to Brandon Sanderson. Yeah. Because he does the same thing. I mean, his prologues are fantastic, and and it takes you some steps to get into who's who and where are you and and start putting it together. And once you realize the picture, you know, and and the world, you you can piece it all together and you can see the picture. But it's still a little bit weird, yeah. I mean, knowing that that's going to happen doesn't make it necessarily any easier that being said, I love prologues like this. I mean, I had to go back and read it like four times, but but I like prologues that just drop you into the action and you yeah. have to go, wow, and now yeah. and now you're rolling, you know, and now it sets the table for 
the bulk of the action. So, And then I think there's something really cool that happens when you move past the prologue and into chapter one. Um, I was, uh, I, I read it. I've, like I said, read a lot of these books, uh, but never thought of it this way until I saw a clip from a lecture that Sanderson gave. Um, and he was talking about how Robert Jordan starts every one of his books. And there's a prologue, sure, but then you get to chapter one, so you're starting the story. And then he does this thing. Uh, I want to get to the actual quote, because I, I really like it. Uh, Sanderson gives us a good way to think of the first few paragraphs of the first chapter of every book that Jordan is about to give us. Uh, think of the prologue to The Fellowship of the Ring, the, the film. We all saw this movie, and mm -hmm. there's this great big battle and all this stuff happening. And then when it's time to start the story, they're kind of flying. The camera's flying over this map, and then the map zooms in. So you, you go, it zooms in on the Shire, and then you go to Hobbiton, and then you go to Bag End, and then you're watching Frodo and Gandalf, and, you know, your main characters start interacting. So I'll read the first couple paragraphs, bear with me, and just picture that kind of flying over the map and zooming in. The wheel of time turns, and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth, and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. In one age, called the third age by some, an age yet to come, an age long past, a wind rose in the mountains of mist. The wind was not the beginning. There are neither beginnings nor endings to the turning of the wheel of time, but it was a beginning. Born below the ever-cloud-capped peaks that gave the mountains their name, the wind blew east, out across the sand hills, once the shore of a great ocean before the breaking of the world. Down it flailed into the two rivers, into the tangled forest called the Westwood, and beat at two men walking with a cart and horse down to the rock-strewn track called, called the Quarry Road. It's a really, I had never thought of it that way, but it really is kind of, you zoom right in on that spot, and then you start with your two, well, not two main characters, but you know what I mean? It, I thought that was, I'd never thought of it before, but I thought now that that's been pointed out, wow, what a genius way to start a book. But it can be off-putting, maybe, to somebody who's not used to it. It's like the verbal equivalent of, of the, you know, three, four-minute, camera pan or you know like like doing like you said a flyover he's he's actually yeah. using the wind to bring you into the scene and settle you into it yeah um which i i went ahead and checked he does the same thing in book two mm -hmm. um, and anyway. pretty much that's kind of his that's kind of his thing like you were saying where uh brandon sanderson talks about that's how he brings people in most of the books that i can remember that i mean there might be one or two that i'm missing but uh most of them will start with the wind and then the wind is, you know, interacting with whatever character he decides to pick um, to start the book with, which is really, really interesting and, and a super clever way of having that verbal equivalent of the camera panning in or zooming in or getting you into the scene. So I think that's interesting you mentioned that because we've had a discussion before how frequently fantasy authors will use the wind as a signal of divine nudging, not necessarily intervention, they're not stopping or moving, but they will cause something to happen because the wind will come through. And so to start with this one on a very macro scale and say, here's this, and the wind blows and it comes as an end, we follow that wind into the two rivers, into the, the, the two guys there. Um, that tells you that they, most likely that something, whatever divine source or whatever there's the wheel itself, whatever it be, um, is having to nudge 
events. It's having to do make something happen, and so it's causing a physical reaction there. Um, I think this is really cool. Uh, I actually learned a really cool lesson a couple weeks ago. I was in I was in New York, and I was walking around on a rainy day, and just decided I was going to go in somewhere. I was going to find something, walk in, and see it. And I came across this place called the Frick Collection. Um, and I went in, I bought my ticket, I went in and realized this is the style of art I hate. I, I just, I don't like this. What is it? It's very, well, it's very French. It, to me, it looks like... <laughs> <laughs> we, say, say no more. It looks like no, something that your, great gra- like your great-grandparents have a, like, china, and then, like, the outside rim of the china plate is, like, flowery, and there's a French maiden in a garden type thing, and I'm just like... <laughs> <laughs> I, I just I didn't care for it, but I'm like, I like I, paid for I like it. that stuff. I, I paid for it. I'm like I want to look at it, and I, I took the audio tour. And as I was listening to a couple different, looking at a couple different paintings with the audio tour, they started pointing out like, and you'll notice above Christ's right shoulder there's an apple here. And I went, wait a minute, I never saw that before. And the more I got taken into the individual parts of the painting, the more the story of the whole piece became apparent to me and valuable. And I think that. Doing this on a very quick scale in a prologue or in, in a piece here and establishing this as a, you know, here's a big view, but I've got, you've got to focus on this part and what it means first before you can really value this piece as a whole is an excellent bit of uh, artistic work that authors don't always do. Agreed. Agreed. There's a, a quote that I want to pull up um, uh, because you just made me think of it. It's from... I know I've mentioned it before, but I've never had the quote at hand, but now I do. Arthur Clutton Brock was this dusty old 19th century English um, uh, scholar. And I don't know what else he gave us, but he did give us a great essay on the value of prose. And this is something that I point out to a lot of people who are new to Sanderson. And now I might point it out here with Jordan as well, although I don't know yet. But he says, the master of prose is not cold, but he will not let any word of image inflame him with a heat irrelevant to his purpose. Unhasting, unresting, he pursues it, subduing all the riches of his mind to it, rejecting all beauties that are not germane to it, making his own beauty out of the very accomplishment out of it, out of the whole work and its proportions, so that you must read to the end before you know that it is beautiful. Um, That's is something you reminded me of. You have to read to the end and you have to understand, you you can't just look at one piece of that little French plate and say, oh, this is, I, I don't like things with gold trim on blue. That's, this mm-hmm. is stupid. Uh, I mean, you can, but then you're a shallow person. You might person. be depriving yourself of something of value but by if, doing so. But if you allow yourself to get into the details, um, not not getting lost in the details, per se, but allowing yourself to get a little more involved in the story, then the beauty of it becomes more apparent, right? Yeah. To say it in a less eloquent way, you got to plow through the first hundred or so pages to really understand that this is good writing or that it's a good story. And and looking at it as, as the series overall, this is probably one of, if not the most daunting series to hand out somebody. there yeah. it, it is say, with, here read this book it's oh yeah it's 14 books long and they're all 800 pages yeah Good luck. But, well but even even this one i mean you've got so many names so quickly that are, are just different than anything you probably have heard you know that in, in normal everyday life you know it's not ryan craig Kyle, it's you know Rand Althor and you know all these apostrophes and and consonants matt. and weird and matt yeah <laughs> i i, I 
I want to get there. Yeah, but <laughs> admittedly, it's Matrim Calthon, so I'll give See, you that. But but once once you get you know get through that, and once you get through the names of the cities, and 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 understanding the cities and towns, and in in relation to where they they fit with each other, once you finally figure it out, you know, the, the, go back and read it a second time, and it's less confusing, which is what I'm I'm going to have to do. But but once you kind of figure it out, the story becomes much more enjoyable yeah, on yeah. its own. Yeah. Well, and that was one thing in the first chapter that I that I that jumped out to me. Now, I've read it before and so I had an idea of who these people were, but the thought occurred to me, you have Bran, Tam, Rand, Matt, and Perrin. And then you have the yeah. women Egwene and Nynaeve, but but with those men's names, it's like Parent is the only one that's different, and so he's the only one that I remember. You know which one is which. It's all yeah. about the single syllable with the a. With in the there. a, yeah. Rand, yep. Lan, Tam, and and so Samwise. <laughs> 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 uh, but anyway, yeah, I did. The thought occurred to me: settle down, Mister Robert Jordan. Let, you know, yep. give me give me a little more variation. But I, on the other hand, I get that when you see the work as a whole. Then you understand that there's uh, he possibly was saying okay there's this region of the world the two rivers and there's this town and they tend to favor this type of name and then it makes more sense but then you get back to you have to get the whole picture before you can appreciate what he's doing but you know in the moment if someone's just starting out for the first time yeah it's going to be a little bit off putting to try to get all these names straight yeah especially and when they all sound so similar admittedly you also have to realize that. A is a fantasy reader. You got to get used to this concept, the the names and things at the beginning that are just going to be difficult. If you come into to a, especially an epic fantasy expecting to r- figure all that out in the first few chapters, yeah. you're going to have a headache and it's going to be very you're going to be very sore about it. And that that's the what other I was saying is, earlier too. It just it's what you get used to. The other thing is that you also have to you look at these short names and there, he's giving you the short name because if he wrote the long name that most of these people actually have, right? Lal Al Lan Al yep. Mandaragon, Lord of the Seven Towers, <laughs> Lord of the Lakes, True Blade of Malkir, Defender of the Wall of First Fires, Bearer of the Sword of the Thousand Lakes. He's you're gonna go okay, no, calm down. <laughs> Can we just go with Lan? And you're like, yep. yeah, we're good with that. Well, <laughs> it, it's a, it's a writing tool that makes it life much easier for the fantasy author but also it re- it's relatable to the reader because if you have a friend who or or a brother or somebody whose name is you know 17 syllables long you're shortening that mm-hmm. you know and it's it, it's just what you do so it makes sense that in the reading that's what you know your characters do and it's interesting in fantasy too because i think that i mean obviously it's purposely done and a lot of people are are knocking that off from tolkien because he had some weird names going on in there too. Um, <laughs> Fatty Bulger. <laughs> Tom but it's, it's interesting because if you just threw out names like, and, and Matt I think is is the best example of this, but if you throw out Matt and Craig and Kyle and, and Ken and, and those names, then your reader's going to try to associate that with maybe American names or whatever, and they're going to automatically pin that type of culture or that type of imagery on these people. And maybe that's not what you're going for, especially in a fantasy setting where you're trying to build your own world and differentiate your culture. Um, So it's an interesting it's an interesting discussion when you talk about fantasy names, because 
most of them are super weird and nobody can pronounce them even the people that are reading for audible and probably robert jordan himself is just like eh, here's some letters and some <laughs> vowels and consonants and, yeah right and <laughs> which which does uh, as a quick aside i should let people know uh we don't care how you pronounce it and we hope you don't care how we pronounce it uh, because i come at it from having listened to the audible books first i'm gonna go with those pronunciations so match generally them. generally the audio the those who read the audiobooks are given a pronunciation guide from the author well beforehand. and i was under the impression that we didn't have a pronunciation guide in this book which is false you can actually go to the back of the book and mm-hmm. there is one there yeah. which i greatly appreciate uh and i kind of wish that publishers would put if they don't put the pronunciation guide up front for fear of spoilers i wish that they would just put a little note on a page up there that says there is a pronunciation guide so that when you come across naive that that looks insane i'm not welsh you know and so so go to the back of the book and look up her name and there's a little pronunciation guide there thank you very much the first time i read this book i didn't have the audible uh, option and i was I I pronounced uh, it's Egwene, right? Yeah. It was Edwin. Edwin. Nice. Edwin was what I called her, and so when my my friend who handed me the book, when I told him, yeah, Edwin, he's like, you're so wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you are so wrong. It's it's went, Luke Skeelwalker, right? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I thought it was. I don't have a problem with pronunciations on this one. I I tend to lean towards whatever the audiobook is because I figure the author has given them this is what they thought, and I'm going to try and match that. By the way, I do have. Um, way too much research that I did on names. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe we can, I won't give it to you all at once because that would be tedious and you'd all uh, jump off my ego into my IQ. But uh, let's see. Nynaeve is actually an alternate spelling of Nynaeve uh, from the Arthur series. Nynaeve is one of the ladies of the lake mm-hmm. from Thomas Mallory's hmm. La Morte d'Arthur. She's often aiding Arthur and his knights in their endeavors. I don't see a lot of character similarities there, but, you know, she exists. Uh, Egwene is... People theorize that that's supposed to evoke Guinevere. So that's probably the origin of that. Egwene. Guinevere. Yeah, something (laughs) like that. Hey, Guinevere. Hey, hey, over here. Uh, Let's see, anything else? I don't think most of the guys are very interesting. Matt and Rand and... Perrin, I, I didn't um, see anything. I, I actually there. read something somewhere, and and we can talk about this a little bit more in depth. But Jordan's uh, purposeful use of of making it very similar to Lord of the Rings for the first part of this book. Oh, sure. And there's very heavy Tolkien mimicry. Oh, I've or got a list of that. Shout oh my gosh. Or whatever. Yeah. But I actually read uh, somewhere that the idea that Perrin is an amalgam of Merry and Pippin. Oh, yeah, that Because makes he's sense. kind ah. of the guy, that he's the friend, one of the friends that goes with the, you know, whoever the hero of the story is. But far more but capable be, than either of them. But it couldn't be Perry, because... It couldn't be Perry, because... That's everybody a, would have the Perry that's Mason a platypus. going through their head. A, per, a what? A Perry the platypus. Perry the platypus. Perry, I don't know. From Perry the everyone, I want Finn you to take just a moment to realize what happened here. <laughs> Craig went to Perry Mason... Everyone else went to Perry the Platypus. <laughs> Just realize that there's an older spirit in the in the room here. Even he enjoys his Matlock and Murder She Wrote. You too. know what? <laughs> Matlock the- was a great show. I will not have you impugning the name of Murder She Wrote at this table. 
Even the old guy. I respect Angela Lansbury. May she live long and prosper. <laughs> Indeed. Have you have you all seen the video? Never mind. There's a video of Angela Lansbury singing Beauty and the Beast like a few weeks ago. It was adorable. Uh, you <laughs> you should know who else it. is adorable? Perry the platypus. All right. <laughs> <laughs> We've taken a hard right turn. <laughs> right. Uh, so there, I've got a list. I didn't count. There's got to be at least a dozen here of things that really jumped out as Tolkien ripoffs. Oh, yeah. Uh, not maybe oh, maybe ripoff is a harsh word. Homage. Intentional homage. Uh, but I, uh, let's see. The rider cloaked all in black. Trollocs are orcs. Mountains of mist. Mountains of doom. Ryan loved that one, I'm sure. At least he had it in H, right? Mm-hmm. Ryan? Uh, doom. Of doom. <laughs> doom. <laughs> Fireworks planned for the party at Beltine. Land's cloak obviously came from Lothlorien. Uh, let's see. <laughs> Hobbits never go on adventures or do anything unexpected. Same thing there. Surely she could see the world outside. It was no place for two rivers, folk. Um, I'll actually argue with you on that one mildly. Okay, mildly. go ahead. Um, because if you, actually, if you listen through the Audible version, there's an interview with Robert Jordan afterwards. Oh, sure. And he talks about one of the things he wanted to do in here, and it could be very much him just doing lip service to saying yeah i didn't rip this off but he talked about how frequently um when you use the trope of the the young man from the farm getting ready to to take off on this great adventure Mm -hmm. he's always dreamed of great adventure and everything he's like well i spent some time with people in the country most of them never want to go anywhere or get out of anything which i'm sure tolkien yeah very similar in that and so his his thought process was i want to write this from the perspective i want my characters to be true country folk not in the uh and not be these I'm hungry for adventure characters, except for maybe Matt. Matt kind of has that there. Right. And so it's I don't necessarily know if it was one of those things that he was like, yeah, I'm just going to rewrite them. I'm just going to make the Hobbits taller. Or <laughs> or if this was legitimately him going, I, I want characters who are hesitant to go, and, and that's going to affect their journey. Yeah. There. He talks about that in his interview, and I went, okay. I also, I also wondered, too... Um, especially in epic fantasy things are so unfamiliar where your world building um jordan wrote this first book i believe it was in 91 or 92 is when it was published 1990 is when it was published. and so he was writing it all through the 80s i'm sure um i think he started in 84 and if I read yeah it. and there's not there wasn't a lot of fantasy on this scale other than the lord of the rings um, right there, there, there's shannara was there's approaching out there it. yeah but uh Starting with something that's familiar to those fantasy nerds, if you will, us, yeah, and branching out from there, because kind of kind of what we were talking about earlier with the world building and just how unfamiliar names and cultures and getting thrown into this place that you have no idea what's going on, you know, giving a- that similarity between a, t- a story that probably most of his readers the people that he's actually trying to sell this book to <laughs> right. have definitely read Lord of the Rings before. So giving them that familiar, like, oh, And if okay. you think about the Lord of the Rings, he does the exact same thing, but he didn't have a past fantasy story to draw on, but that's why The Hobbits and, and the entire Shire is basically late 19th century England. Uh, it has a very similar social structure, uh, very similar attitudes, very similar economy... Uh, well, in a way, but uh, well, it's the Tolkienized version of it. But anyway, it, but it is very familiar to Tolkien's readers in England 
in the midnight or the mid 20th century who are thinking back to how their parents and their grandparents grew up so it's not like this is a fantasy story so it's not like my life but it's like something that i can recognize and, and it's the same thing now you know it's we were familiar tolkien is kind of in the fabric of fa the fantasy reader universe even if you aren't all that familiar with it you get these tropes that he introduced well right? and even even right now in in pop literature i will say pop culture or whatever i don't mean to demean uh jordan or tolkien down to these levels but you see like so many dystopian novels now that are, are blatant ripoffs of the hunger games which is or, which is a blatant well, ripoff of the other dystopian novels that came before right. it and it's like oh this is basically a cookie cutter way of how you sell a million books and yeah. it's a great way to start your fantasy series and even by the end of this book, Jordan will get away from a lot of the really tropey tropes, which I'm coining, by the way. Uh, you can coin it. It's not currency. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he'll, he'll get away from some of that. But still, it, he starts this book very formulaically. Yeah. yeah. Coining that one, too. Yeah. No, I, I, it's one of my... I think for a lot of people, we get into this... Oh, it's not original. Whoopity frickin' do. Shut up. <laughs> Guess what? Nothing's there hasn't really been a truly original story for a very, very long time. Like the, there's that tr the saying that every story has been told. It it doesn't mean that its value is diminished uh, because it comes from a familiar place. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is the beginning of this. Is you can take you can just kind of pull a name out of the hat. You want this is the Star Wars story. This is you it's, know this is the Belgarians. This is the Belgaria. This is whatever. It's it's a farm boy and his friends getting taken off by a magic person into the forest to go have to save the world. Now go ahead and you know make little tweaks here and there. That's yep. totally okay. It's about the journey after that. It's the rest of the journey that's going to matter. We've got fourteen books here, people. If <laughs> strap in, yeah. it's StarCraft and Warcraft. You just change the pixels out. <laughs> <laughs> it's so I I, I used to, I, I used to be one of those who was like, oh, it's just kind of a ripoff of of this or whatever. And you know what? I feel bad that I that I badmouth Shannara as much as I have in the past because of that. I've for things like because you know what? It's okay. As long as the author's not coming in saying, I created this as an original, amazing piece, and it's okay. Even the greatest authors of, of history had people that they referred to. Um, you go back, I was reading someone who actually was kind of breaking this down, and I really appreciated part of what they were saying. He says, uh, uh, it's not bad to take inspiration from older authors. All authors do this. Virgil took from Homer, Milton took from Virgil, and Byron from Milton. Tolkien himself drew on North Edis. Welsh myths, English fairy tales, and Blake's myth making. All these great things have, there's a source from somewhere that they've come from. So guess what? It's okay. Deal with it. And and oftentimes you'll find, again, going back to Tolkien, and I do this all the time, I apologize, but he had all these references. There's so much that's not really original, but he freshens it, he gives it new life, but he does introduce some concepts that you don't see in previous works so in Tolkien's case it would be the ring wraiths is the classic example of something really original that he did yeah. and there are going to be things in Jordan that he does that are in fact quite original um, and I'm sure we'll get there but right now we're still at the beginning of the book when stuff is uh, not quite there yet yeah if, yeah. if you've been listening following us for whatever 
30, 20, 30 minutes we've been going so far. We actually haven't 40. got 40 minutes. <laughs> yeah. We actually haven't gotten anywhere into the book yet other than the prologue in the first little bit. It's, we've been talking about the value this as a, whether or not it fits as a fantasy novel, basically. And you know what? Absolutely. For this, for this book and for Robert Jordan, uh, frequently people say that this is one of the the pinnacles, one of the great series in fantasy. And I'm okay with that. I was a little hesitant at first, knowing knowing that there's a lull in there, knowing there's you've got a slog to go through on some of these things and in some of the later books. Um, I, I was really questioning whether or not it merited that statement. And you know what? When it comes down to defining fantasy and have, handing someone something and saying, this is what epic fantasy is, I feel like I could hand someone this series and they would understand this is what an epic fantasy tale should be like. Yeah, I'm yeah. okay with that. And that's one book in so far. Here, here. Yeah. I don't have anything to add to that. Um, I've got a million bullet points, but I want to go to one of you. Ken, do you have anything you want to talk about? Uh, let me see what I've got here. Um, Lan, he's cool. Yeah, we got there. <laughs> go to your next one. Um, I I fell, I like the, uh, the flame. Before you get off, okay. Lan, someone brought something up on the uh, on the internet when I was doing some research about <laughs> Lao. I love the way you said that, like it was totally foreign on the internet. <laughs> on the interwebs. The, the internet. And this is going to totally derail us for a very short time, and I apologize for it, but it's going to be worth it. This is one of those character versus character fight sequences. Who wins? Lan versus Aragorn. Aragorn. Yeah, well, they sure. are the same. They're they are the same. one in the <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> they are the fighting man accompanying the wizard, helping the farm boy-esque people save the world, but they're also kings of a forgotten nation or... In the north. In the mm-hmm. north that, you know... So they are essentially... With longevity. I mean, it's, so, yeah. it's you know, can you can you have a battle with yourself, I guess? <laughs> yes, uh, because I know about Shadowlink. That was exactly... From, <laughs> yes, <laughs> there you go. Uh, I, I'd probably give this one to Lan if I had to choose. Okay. Uh, just because, like, yeah, Aragorn's really skilled and stuff, but he can't... He doesn't have, like, an invisibility cloak, basically, so... Which, okay. by by the way, I always... I don't know if, how many times I've brought it up, actually, on the podcast, but I, I love the Ranger's Apprentice. It's simple. What the hell are you talking about? I'm getting there. Oh, okay. It, it's simple. <laughs> it, it, talking about hard right turns. Well, it's, it's simple young adult fantasy, but but uh, one of the things in The Ranger's Apprentice is this mottled gray and green cloak that makes them almost kind of invisible. You know, uh, okay. teases their teases the vision and stuff, and it's the very first thing I thought of this. I'm like, I wonder if that's where John Flanagan got that. Uh, probably. It's from this, from Lan and his shimmery cloak. All right, last Lan thing. Uh, let's see. Lan has the greatest pickup line of all time in this book when he walks up to Nynaeve and just says, you are needed. (laughs) (laughs) Drop the hair and mark blade. Exactly. (laughs) Walk away. That is a a man's pickup line there. Exactly. (laughs) Pickup line. I was going to say a pickup line for men, but (laughs) (laughs) that's a different thing. Nice. Slightly different meaning Oh, there. my goodness. I suppose it would work there, too. Uh, okay, what cool. What has happened here? Uh, Kyle, do you have any uh, bullet points you want to bring up, or should I move on to my next one? Um, I want to go back a little bit to the ancient symbol of the Aes Sedai. Ooh, yes, we talked let's. about that a little bit with the yin and yang. <laughs> the um, flame of Tarvalon, yes. Tarvalon and the dragons, too. Yes, you separate them out, and they've become their own symbols 
separately from their ancient symbol. Which is super cool, by the way. Which is very cool. And and it goes back to that idea of the dark side because people put the dragon's fang on someone's door when they think that they're evil, which kind of makes zero sense when you really think about it because the dragon is not necessarily evil. Um, Well... But the evolution of the taint of Sidon and, you know, men that can channel are evil essentially the, the corruption of the story of the dragon i think is what lends people to put him in the same uh category as as dark friends and, and things like that which by the way when you're talking about minions of the dark dark friends yeah dark friends that's what you go with okay all right whatever well also children of the light Ooh, the children are after me i that it's a pompous enough name i'm okay with it yeah um and it fits for them but yeah what were we talking about dragon's fang dragon's fang <laughs> Flame of Tarvalin. <laughs> we're, we're so good at this, you guys. We're so good. We're professionals. I had a point I was trying to get to, and then I got a hard derailed there. <laughs> oh, man. I'm going to go back and listen through this section and go, oh, yeah. You're right. Oh, I knew exactly what I was going to say now. But, yeah, I'm going to have to move on. Dra- <laughs> Dragon's Fang. Sweet. Kyle, were you done with that point? or? Did um, you- yeah, I mean, I just, I just kind of wanted to bring attention to that because we had spoken about it a little bit earlier, but we didn't quite dive into it just the idea that did you get it i came back i was talking about yeah. how the dragon his his story was corrupted yes that's where i was he was his story was corrupted so people put him in the same category as dark friends and, and evildoers yeah. even though we as readers know in in the back here that he's he's the champion for good uh for them the the destruction that he has wrought it makes him questionable whether or not he's actually that champion um, but you see it in the characters who realize his importance um, in Moraine, um, other characters. <laughs> <laughs> Moraine at this point. Mo- Moraine. Um, Tom Marilyn, sort of. Uh, I think Tom Marilyn has a as a an idea as to who he might be. Um, I've been reading into the second book, so I'm trying to balance what happens there versus what happened in the first. Um, I think so. I think it's interesting too talking about just the corruption of the dragon story um, within within Randland. The Wheel of Time verse, I guess. Um, Randland. Randland. Well, that's that's how they refer to it over on Dragon Mount, which is nice. an awesome website. Um, all about all about Wheel of Time. Randland. Randland. Um, Land. But it's interesting to think the corruption of of the dragon story, and that some people think that that means like that it's connected to the Dark One, and and in a way it is because the taint on side in is the Dark One's taint. But it also made me think. <laughs> Ryan, just don't. Yes. Me. Just, you Come know. Come on, man. We are 30 <laughs> years old. <laughs> I think that. He's going to have to excuse himself. In this first book, yeah. there are a lot of different evils, which I think is very interesting. It's not just the ultimate dark one. It makes it more complex. As the evil. It makes it so much more complex that there are so many more evils when you talk about the uh, men that channel going mad is like more of a man-made evil itself. Right. Shadar Logoth is a m- completely man-made evil that yeah. even the Dark One's minions are afraid of. Wait, that one's completely man-made? Was its origin explained in this book? She, and yes. I, I so just she, don't remember. She explains a little bit about Mordeth and the... Mordeth's taint. <laughs> yes, Mordeth's taint on the dagger. 
We're um, not going to be able to talk Matt about the rest Stagus. of the series. <laughs> I'm just elbowing Ryan at this point. Just, just poking him in the ribs. I don't know why that. It just must have been the day. That, that just hit me hard there. Okay. Sorry. Anyway, but no, I didn't realize but the idea, where it came from. The idea that there are, there are multiple evils, and even when they get into the ways, that the ways were created by men who could channel... Um, I think lo- it's either loyal or or Moraine that explains it to them as they talk about the ways. But the ways are created by men who can channel after there has been taint on the true source. Re- after Wait, the dark I thought it was. It. I thought it was create created. The ways were created before, and then they, I believe, worked through the dark ones. Taint <laughs> on the on the true source to create the ways, and they didn't know until after several years or however long it took for the ways to become corrupted. I'm I'm gonna step over all of you guys and just go just say as the new guy who is reading this for the first time, I read this entire thing and I don't know half of I don't remember half of what we're discussing what even what we're even talking about yeah well there's a lot i know a lot that happens i mean i i know you know about the the ruby dagger and the the city and all i know all that but i so many things that i'm like okay i catch that i don't catch this Mm -hmm. i'm i'm still i'm just plugging things in at this point i'm I'm gonna have to go back and read this again and maybe that's a a disclaimer for the people who are listening to this who are are trying to decide if they want to read it or not definitely read this book be well, prepared to read I, it a second time. I guarantee they haven't made it 48 minutes into this podcast if they uh, haven't read the book already. Yeah. So. Uh, oh, gosh. Man, that was... I, I feel like I'm back under control, but mm-hmm. my brain got really derailed there. Thanks, Ryan. Sorry. I haven't seen you laugh like that in a long time. That was pretty remarkable. I just want you all to know that it, when things really hit like that, like I tears in my eyes, I was unable to do you're anything. out of commission <laughs> and you're dragging me down with you i used to uh, get in trouble when i was a little kid because me and my cousin would laugh at the dinner table not at anything all that funny but we each thought the other was hilarious when they were laughing and so we would get sent to our room and nah. uh you know and and we just laugh until we were done so yeah that uh, thanks a lot ryan but uh <laughs> What else? What, do, now that we're talking about the Dark One and and um, Mordeth and all that, do we want to talk about some bad guys? Um, you were talking a minute ago before things got stupid uh, <laughs> about the complexity of of the bad guys in this. One of my favorites is the Children of the Light, and Ryan, you already mentioned the pomposity of the Children of the Light, which I think is a great way to describe them. I love the idea that just because something is good doesn't mean that you can't overdo it, that your attachment to it. They're they're so zealous. Zealous, exactly. Yeah. They're they're such zealots that they become what they strive to protect against. It gives them a certain power to be the representatives of the light and say you're a dark friend, you're a dark friend, or whatever. And and they start to use that and to manipulate that because they have that uh, authority over whomever they... I mean, whoever they think they have the authority over. Because from the general consensus, from the common people, 
whether it be in Camelin or wherever else we run into the children of the light within the eye of the world, most of them think that they all pretty much suck. But you don't want to piss them off because they'll put the dragon's fang door or on your door or they'll send you to white cloak questioners, questioners. or whatever it is. Um, but it's interesting because they are the kind of the epitome of power corrupting mm-hmm. and they don't have any sort of true power like the one power or anything like that. But it's just a matter of they are essentially their own army that aren't really beholden to any nation necessarily i mean they have their they're in altara i think is what it's called i can't remember off the top of my head but they they're beholden to themselves and nobody tells white cloaks what to do but white cloaks and they feel like they're marshalling the entire world for the light right you know there's a there are a lot of modern um a lot of modern ways to apply this idea of being zealously attached to something that's good to the point where you are no longer doing the right thing. Uh, and, and I mean, it happens all over the place and I don't, I mean, I don't want to get too specific or call out the wrong thing. I I don't want people to be upset with me, <laughs> but, but I, I uh, what's a, a good example might be, so racism I think we'd all agree that's bad, but at a certain point, you get so attached to that idea that that racists are, racists are bad people, and that pretty soon it becomes people that I don't like are obviously racist. You know, it, you yeah. can get into that territory, mm-hmm. right? Is that was that fair? I feel I feel like I was treading on dangerous ground there, but I feel like that was a you, fair thing to say. You, you, you skirted it well. It, it's shifting from the the act to the label and. And, it, and it's exactly what the White Cloaks do. Um, in Camelin, I believe it is, when Rand kind of laughs at when the White Cloak gets, like his cloak gets splashed right. on or he gets, something happens to him and and Rand kind of chuckles to himself and the White Cloaks take notice and they think... You're a dark friend. You're a dark friend because basically you saw me be humiliated and I don't like that. That means you must be a dark friend. Right. right. Anyway, so I, I guess... Uh, one of the things I love doing with fantasy books is finding the modern applications, the things that we can see and apply and, and learn to be a little bit better. I feel like that's a good one. Look at the white cloaks and see what not to do with the good things in life. Right? Hmm. Eh, anyway. I think one of the things that I really like about this series and that I think a good epic fantasy series will have is variations of type of villain. Um pretty much all of every fantasy series will have their kind of their peons their grunts of of that in this case we have the trollocs, the trollocs. um you have their their masters the fades in in this story um you have the children of light that are a different type of things but they all kind of genuinely generally have a certain element about them that is unique to them you have the the manipulators uh, the schemers you have the the those who are conquerors things like that um, and I, I enjoy seeing different types of villains in different in, in this story. And the children of light right now, for example, they're not really they're not really conquerors. They're they're we've already hit on it. They're basically religious zealots is what they are with their religion being their own power. Um, but when you have the Trollocs and the Fades and everything, they're I, I'm trying to think what their best description would be as to the type of villain they are because. The Trollocs are the or peons and grunts, but the rest of the dark, dark 
not dark friends, but the actual the fades and the Murdral. Uh, the Murdral and the fades are the same. Oh, thing. sorry, the uh, Dragars, and that's what I was thinking. I was trying to get the other one, the flying. The Dragar. Okay, yeah, yeah, the flying one, the one that eventually is going to try and kiss someone. Um, <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I'm just trying to think what. Uh, I didn't know these were sexy fantasy books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just you wait. Maybe I picked up the wrong version. The romance <laughs> section. <laughs> The but they're, uh, they're essentially the orcs. The, the great hunt for the horny, been. right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Some of them, yes. Um, Many of them. Yeah. But they're, yeah, they're essentially the orcs and the the uh, ring wraiths. Um, they're kind of yeah. just the forces of evil that you have that are, are they're pretty expendable. It's how they make up their army. Um, but then you get into like the big bad villain in the eye of the world, which is Baalzaman. Which I want to talk about. A little more name knowledge for you guys. Uh, Baal-Zaman is derivative of the Hebrew Baal-Zebub. Right? Baal-Zebub is is one word that's used in the the Bible for uh, a demon, probably Satan. Uh, Another name for Baal-Zaman, the one that, you know, he he who shall not be named, the name they don't use is Shaitan, which is straight up ripped out of Arabic. It means Satan. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then there's there's uh, a bunch of what what are the lieutenants of the Dark One? The Forsaken. The Forsaken. There's a bunch of those names. The only one that really jumped out to me on this one, and I know we'll learn about more later, but uh, Ishmael. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was like, well, geez, that's just Ishmael, right? <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So I looked him up, and I was like, I don't remember because he, he's called like Ishmael the. The, the betrayer, the betrayer of, hope. of hope. Yes, and he is our he is our very first antagonist in the prologue because he right. is the guy that shows up to give Lucifer in that lucidity and, and say, "Hey, dude, you're insane, and this is all on you." And so, I, so I was looking <laughs> him up because I was like, "Wait a minute, Ishmael in the Bible? I don't remember him being a betrayer." And there's the Ishmael that's uh, Abraham's first son by Hagar, and that doesn't really fit very well as a betrayer of hope. But there is another one, um, Ishmael ben Nathania, which is uh, in the book of Jeremiah. He murders Gedalia at a feast. Uh, so that's a possible candidate as a betrayer, but I, it, it didn't seem meaty enough. So maybe he just ripped a name out of the Bible and used it. Um, it could have come a, from Moby Dick. There's a, <laughs> there's a ton of um, biblical references and a ton of like Arthurian references uh, some of which we've already seen, but anyway. To which you can credit you you can either credit it and say, "Wow, you're lazy and just ripping straight ripping off," or you can say, "Okay, it, you know." Well, and I I don't think that's it. I, um, Kyle, I know you've got a list of like some things that aren't quite ripoffs. That what they are is uh, he's trying so, to tie the world uh, together in a wheel. Saying that so the idea that I've seen, and it's somewhat argued, um, maybe on on like the forums on Dragon Mountain things, but fairly um, accepted. And I believe that uh, Robert Jordan in an interview actually confirmed this. But this world of the Wheel of Time is actually supposed to be our own world in a different age. So the whole beginning where it talks about the, you know, it's called the third age by some, um, there are the idea that there are seven ages in the wheel of time and time is cyclical and it just basically continues through that. And 
our age meaning, meaning the same thing happening over and essentially, over essentially yeah i mean in different ways but the same basic structure um with the dragon cycle and all of that that the dragon is reborn and all of that kind of thing right um but it's generally accepted that the age of legends that is always alluded to is really our age like right now in the present for our world um and, and the the most obvious reference to that is the dude who flew to the moon in so the there's belly of there's an eagle. several of them and they are they're strewn throughout the book um but i actually have i think i've have, have the quote here tom is telling when he's telling all of his stories and i think i think they're still in the two rivers and and he starts to tell tales of um is the, i think it's len yeah so he talks about len who flew to the moon in the belly of an eagle um, clearly, the eagle has landed. Yeah, clearly referencing landing on the moon, um, and yeah, the eagle has landed. Um, there's also he talks about Mosk and Merc um, and their lances of fire that they nearly destroyed the world. It's talking about Moscow um, and Merc as as America. America. <laughs> talking about the Cold War. And Merca. Merca. Yeah, and Merca. <laughs> Make it great. It. Wow. Um, <laughs> But yeah, Mosk and Merck with their lances of fire, talking about nuclear war. Okay. Um, and then there's references to Queen Elsbeth, who is Queen Elizabeth. Um, references oh, nice. to okay. Ma Therese, the healer, who is Mother, Mother Teresa. Teresa. Um, so there are several huh. little things like that strewn throughout um, the Eye of the World, but even further on in the series, that reference to our actual age. Um, and especially when you talk about the Age of Legends, I don't know if you guys remember, this was like very quick and i i forgot to mark it down in the book where it is but as rand and matt are going down the river on on the riverboat with bail doman they see this tower right and it's this shining tower that's that matt refers to i don't know maybe it's not when they're on the on the yeah, boat yeah, but they're no they are they on the pa- boat. yeah they pass through it or they go past it and they reference it as being made of like solid glass or something that they're just unfamiliar with. And Bale Doman says, oh, it's a remnant from the Age of Legends. And and I don't know for sure. It's never been like pinned down exactly. Um, it will come back into play later on, but I don't know that it's you know a skyscraper. But it's not that much out of the realm of possibility to think mm-hmm. a solid tower that they can't see any sort of like traditional entrance to with, you know, in regards to the wheel of time where they're at right now could easily be this steel glass structure remnant from the age of legends. So Shadar Logoth was the great Twitter convention of 2020. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) They they tried, they tried to make Mosque and Merc great again. (laughs) Yes. Uh, cool. Uh, you guys, we've got a bajillion more things to talk about. So we haven't even talked about our main character. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. We're, yeah, we're like, oh, we'll do two episodes on this first book. It'll be no problem. Well, we'll see. Uh, but we will reconvene, uh, and talk about more of this book. So hang in there. We are not done with the wheel of time and we will release more of that, uh, as November continues. So hang in there. Uh, I think next week we may want to talk about um, what just came out, Doctor Strange. Strange. We may want to talk about Doctor Strange, so be on the lookout for that one. And uh, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast so that in a couple weeks when the next Wheel of Time uh, episode comes out, you'll be ready for it. And we will see you all then. You guys good? 
for now until oh, yeah. we come back. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm just trying to deal with the Dark One's taint. <laughs> don't. Please don't. Oh, gosh. I hate you guys. All right. Peace out, everybody. Peace out, everybody.